I'll ask you now to stand with me as I read the first five verses uh, of the Gospel of John this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come to you through worship, scripture reading, prayer, we recognize that you are our God. that all things point towards you, that all things are created to bring you glory. And as we turn now to these first verses in the gospel of John, we recognize a more full picture of you is given to us here in this text. That we see the son of God, the word, the light, the life presented to us clearly. Help us to believe it today as we recognize that you, Jesus, are the light of the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Often we hear the question this time of year, what does Christmas mean to you? And if you ask that of someone probably this morning, maybe you're having an 11 o'clock small group and you were to go in there and you were to begin that time, what does Christmas mean to you? Most would likely give good church answers. Oh, it's the birth of Jesus. This is the time we celebrate the incarnation. Maybe somebody even tries to sound smart, right? This is the time of year that we recognize that God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die in our place. But as Christmas over the decades has become more and more of a secular holiday and embraced by uh, much of the world as such, Christmas has taken on many meanings to people. And if you were to just go down to Walmart today and ask the question six feet away with your mask on, what does Christmas mean to you? You would get a plethora of answers, very few of them likely pointing towards Jesus, even on the outskirts here of the Bible Belt. People would say things like family, good food, giving presents. If you ask children, maybe getting presents, even if you didn't ask children, maybe if you even ask some adults. Getting presents, time off of work. They may use words like we have used lighting our Advent wreath over the last three weeks now, words like joy and hope and peace. Because Christmas in an, ever in, in an ever increasing secular culture has become to mean many things to many people. But here's what we know. Regardless of what people think Christmas means to them, it only means one true thing. The coming of Jesus, the light of the world, the son of God incarnate in the flesh, God himself 
come to us, Emmanuel, that we might have life. But then that begs this same question. Not what does Christmas mean to you, but who is Jesus to you? And just as Christmas has taken on numerous meanings in people's minds over the years, so has the person of Jesus. That if you were to go to that same place in our culture today, standing again outside of a shop like Walmart and ask people the question, who is Jesus to you? You will get lots of answers. Some may deny that he exists, but very few likely would do that. Most people in at least Western civilization believe that Jesus exists, existed at least they may say. Some would say things like he was a good teacher, he was a prophet, he pointed us to God, he taught us things about sacrifice and service. And while some of those things may be partially true about Jesus, I believe the most important question we can answer or we can seek to answer during this Christmas season is not who do I think Jesus is, but what does the Bible say to be true about him? Hear me this morning. The Bible leaves no room for us to create our own version of Christ. We must humbly recognize that God has spoken to us through his word. And in his word, he has clearly articulated truth about Jesus. And while we may want to create for ourselves our own personal understanding, our own personal version of who Jesus is, as we have with what does Christmas mean, we cannot do so and remain faithful Christians. To be a Christian is to understand what the Bible says to be true about Jesus and to believe it. And John 1, 1 through 18, this prologue, this introduction to the fourth gospel in the New Testament clearly tells us who Jesus is. And so during this Advent season for the next three weeks, this is what we will look at. This week, the nature of Jesus. Next week, the proclamation of Jesus. How all of the Old Testament, and including John the Baptist, which is mentioned here in the later verses, uh, it leads up to Christ. And then ultimately, two days after Christmas on December 27th, the third part of this series, the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. But today, the nature of Jesus Who is this second person of the Trinity, this Christ child born in a manger, yet eternally existing as God? Let's see what John has to say here. Begins with the eternal divine nature of Jesus Christ. Verse one begins with simple yet profound language. In the beginning was the word. Now, if you have spent any time around a Bible at all, or if you were here six months ago when we began our series in Genesis, these words should seem somewhat familiar to you. Because the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1 like this. In the beginning, God. 
Then it tells us what God did. He created the heavens and the earth. But the author of Genesis begins with an assumption. The assumption is that there exists an eternal God. And John, beginning his book here in the New Testament, begins with a similar assumption. In the beginning was the word. Now that word was, such a simple word in the English language, we're going to see appear multiple times here in John's prologue to his gospel. And I'll explain this later here in a few moments, but there are really two under, say two Greek words that would be used in that place to denounce, uh, to denote being. And the one that is used here and the one that is used most often in these verses is the one that talks about an eternal existence. Not something that was created and became or came into existence, but something that has always been. And that is what is used here. That John 1, even just this fir- these first few verses, these first few words in this first verse clearly teaches us something that we must understand to be true about Jesus, just as Genesis 1 assumes that God has always existed, Genesis, uh, John 1 assumes that Jesus Christ has also always existed. And you say, wait a second, I'm looking at these six words here, in the beginning was the word, and I don't see the word Jesus at all. How do I know that's who John is talking about? John is going to use multiple synonyms for Jesus. This is very common in his gospel. That he uses words that describe who Christ is. And here, even in these five verses, we're going to see him described as the word, as the life, and as the light. All giving us a more full picture of who he is. And he begins with that he is the word. It was the word that God spoke creation into being, and John will explain that further for us. The word of God being the power of God by which everything exists. But that's not the only time we see the word of God in the Old Testament. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 15, we read this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Yes, the word of God is the power of God to create, which we will explore more in verse three, but we also must understand that the word of God is his covenant between himself and man. That when God spoke his word to Abraham, beginning this covenant with a select people in the Old Testament, expanded to the world through Jesus. It is through Christ himself that God the Father is speaking. There is so much to be said about these simple words. In the beginning was the word, eternally existing, the creative and covenantal power of God existed in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. That verse continues, and the word was with God, and the word 
was God. Now let's just think of these two clauses separately. First, that first, and the word was with God. By being with God, which is a uh, translation of a, in the literal sense, here's what it means, that, that he, the word was towards God. The word was in relationship with God. The evangelist John here clearly indicates that the word and God, meaning the Father, Jesus and the Father are relationally connected but unique. This first clause, which he does not end this, uh, this sentence with, but we need to wrap our heads around first before we move to the second one, is that there is personhood within the Godhead. You see, Jesus is not a visible bodily representation of the Father. Jesus is the Son. Meaning this, it is a true statement to say that in the beginning, Jesus existed. That's from the first part of chapter, uh, verse 1. And then we see that Jesus existed with God. And if we understand John when he says the word God to be talking about the Father as we know him, then here's how we read this. The word has eternally existed with the Father. That they are unique persons within the Godhead, that they are different from one another, but are in relationship with one another, that the word is towards God. He then continues in that second clause, and the word was God. There are very few short little statements in the New Testament that have caused more trouble than this one. Because if it were not for this statement, and yes, others like it, this isn't the only place that we see this. But if it wasn't for this statement, then we could say that I get to determine who I want Jesus to be. That he could just be a good prophet or a good teacher. That he could be some type of lesser deity than, than God. That maybe he's some kind of demigod, some second tier God sent by the Father to tell us about him. But John leaves no room for these false understandings of who Jesus is. Because he says that Jesus was with God, meaning he is unique, a unique person, different than the Father. And yet the word was meaning existed as, always, eternally, God. The Word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is just as much God as the Father is God, even though the Word is not the Father, and the Father is not the Word. If you've not confused yet, it's because you're not listening You say, well, wait, shouldn't you explain it to us? Well, this is the best I have. Because we're trying to explain something that our little finite minds can't fully comprehend and wrap ourselves around. And we need to be okay with that. You need to be okay with just affirming this biblical truth. The Father is God. But the Father is not Jesus. Jesus is God. Yet Jesus is not the Father. And if we were to keep reading in the Gospels, here's what we would see. There's a whole third person, too, in the Holy Spirit, who is God and is yet not the Father or the Holy Spirit, or not the Son. 
that three existing eternally as one, all God, but unique in perfect relationship with one another. In John 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the, his, his foil characters in, in the account, the, the Pharisees, and, and they're, they're questioning him, and they ask him this question, because Jesus is talking about his eternal nature, and they're, they're really concerned about that. So they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Now, for the last couple of months, we've been studying Abraham here on Sunday mornings. Great, exalted Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. You can understand why they would ask this question. And they said, he died. And then the prophets that came after him died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, this is a fair question. Don't, we, there's plenty of fault to be given to the Pharisees, but this isn't the time. This is a fair question. All right, Jesus, who do you say you are? Because if Abraham died and the prophets died after him, obviously you're claiming, these are smart guys. You're obviously claiming to be something other than. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me or, who, or of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now there we see the two uses of those terms. Before Abraham was, meaning something that came into existence, I am. I have eternally existed. Jesus claims for himself that which God claimed in the burning bush to Moses. I am that I am. I exist. There is a difference between being brought into existence and an ongoing existence. Abraham the prophets, you and I, this entire universe, we're all brought into existence by the word we will see in the next verse. But he, like the father, we're not brought into existence. They have eternally existed. We, like Abraham, were made. But Jesus, the word, he is. I am. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit have always been. He was, verse 2 tells us, with, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 2 is a simple restatement of John's thesis in verse 1. And it is, serves as the primary conflict within the entire gospel. Jesus is God. Because see, to be with God before time and matter and space existed is to be God. There is nothing that, has, that existed other than God outside of that which God has made. But Jesus did because he is eternal, divine God. Number two, the omnipotent, creative nature of Jesus. Look at verse three. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
Now, we've already seen that Jesus is the word of God existing with God as God at the beginning of time. That before Genesis 1-1, before God spoke this universe into being, he eternally existed as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here we see Jesus and the Father together. But now things come into being and it is through him that they are made. All powerful. Everything made through him. And then John even says, in case we didn't catch it the first time, that nothing, not anything was made that was not made through him. This is regularly affirmed within the New Testament. In one place in Hebrews chapter one, we read it like this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All things, everything we see, everything we don't see, everything we know to exist and everything we have yet to discover was made through him, Hebrews 1 tells us. Paul builds on this idea in Colossians chapter 1. He says, for by him all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So the, the creative act of making the universe was made through the word of God, Jesus Christ, but it is also sustained. There is a continuous sustaining act that happens in him. We just need to ponder that for a moment, that right now everything that is held together in our world, in our universe, is held together in him. Now, we can see a lot, and, and we, we have developed instruments and tools to know a lot about our universe, and the more we learn about our universe, the more glory we should give to God, because the more majestic it becomes to think that he made it all, and in him, Christ Jesus, it all holds together. Think just for a moment about just the little sun that lights our solar system. There's actually not very much significant scientists would tell us about our sun. It's not nearly the largest one. There are some that are much, much bigger. Ours is pretty common in the universe. But it's still an incredible thing to think that every second, the sun that lights our universe, that gives light and warmth to this earth, every second enough energy is created in the core of that to equal one trillion megatons. Now, the largest nuclear bomb the United States ever created was 25 megatons, meaning that 40 million of the largest bomb ever created in the United States would need to go off every second to equal that of the sun. Incredible power just in this one star that is one of trillions in our universe and they are all created and sustained by the word. It was through him and for him that they were all made 
and it is in him that they all hold together. Not only is the word eternal and divine, but the word as God has all power and created and sustains everything that we know. Number three, the life light giving nature of Jesus Christ. Verse four reads, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, John 1, as we have already seen, has some parallels to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is being very intentional. That intentionality carries here into verse 4. Because think with me first about what God does in Genesis 1. He, by the power of his word, speaks time and space and matter into existence. But then we're told that it is formless and void. And when I preached that back this summer, I said that meant uninhabitable and uninhabited. That there was nothing, there's no life that could exist, that it just in some form that we can't fully understand existed matter and space and time that God spoke into existence. And then what we see in Genesis 1 is God, by the power of his word, crafting this universe into something that can sustain life. And what's the first thing that he does in Genesis 1? After speaking this into existence, he says this, let there be light. The Bible tells us there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. The first signs of life in this formless and void universe was light. Life and light go together. They went together in Genesis 1 as God begins to make life in this universe that had none. And in John 1, life and light go together as Jesus, the light of the world, comes into our world to bring us life. Because in him was life and the life was the light of Men, this is what Jesus does. He brings light into darkness. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus brings light. He brings light into our world by bringing light into our lives. And the light that he brings into our lives is light that gives life. Life could not have existed in this universe that God created if it were not for light. If it were not for him separating light from darkness. And yes, I think in Genesis 1, there's more to that light and darkness than just mere light that illuminates our eyes and darkness which covers them. We must recognize the spiritual understanding there as well, that those who are in Christ are in his light. We can see. And those who are still blinded in the darkness of their own sin in the ways of this world are in darkness and do not have 
life. And in verse 5, the light and the darkness is explained even further to us. Where John writes, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now here in verse 5 is a, a, a unique translation that may be different in your English Bible. The ESV, the English Standard Version, which I preach out of on uh, Sunday mornings, says that the darkness has not overcome the light. But if you have the New American Standard Bible, or if you have the King James or the New King James, it very likely says, or it does say, that the darkness has not comprehended the light. If you have the King James, it says comprehended it not. And you say, well, does that mean that one of these is right and the other one is wrong? Could we use this as an argument for let's just have one English translation and, and, and not read any other that, that we need to just stick with one? No, actually, I think having multiple translations helps us here. Because neither one of these words fully describe what the word John uses in the Greek when he says what is translated overcome or comprehend. The word actually means both of those things. It means that the darkness, which the light has shown now through Jesus into the darkness, that that darkness did not understand the light. And it, because it doesn't understand the light, comprehend, it cannot overcome it. That the darkness cannot conquer the light because the darkness does not understand the light. So actually both translations are correct. And when we think about them together, then we really get the picture of what John is saying here, that when the light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not know what to do with it and has no weapon of war against it because it doesn't understand it. I recognize the culture in which we live has a lot of military and Anytime I use a military illustration, somebody always comes to me in the lobby and tells me what I got wrong about it, and that's okay. I'm not military. But I'm gonna use a really old one. So maybe by going really old, and when I say really old, I mean like 2,500 years, uh, maybe I'm gonna get this one correct. There's an ancient Chinese uh, book of war called The Art of War, attributed to a man named General Sun Tzu from the fifth century B.C., and in this long tome is probably the most well-known phrase from it. Know thy enemy. But he doesn't stop there, by the way. He continues, know thy enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be defeated. I believe this is probably why our military still today and militaries all over the world spend untold amounts of money to study their enemy. Why? Because if you truly know your enemy, then you are going to have a better chance of defeating. But the darkness is unable to know the light. It cannot comprehend the light. And because the darkness cannot comprehend the light, it will never overcome it. To use a scientific illustration, and I really get in trouble with science. Light invades darkness, not the other way around. And John understood this. Even, even first century Greek understanding 
Greco-Roman understanding of light is this, that light travels into darkness, not the other way. Meaning, I could, we could light candles here and bring light into this room, but there's nothing that we can make in this room that would bring darkness. We would have to extinguish the light, right? There's nothing that creates darkness, only that which creates light. Light goes into darkness, not the other way. The darkness cannot defeat the light. The world cannot defeat Jesus. This is the promise of scripture. This is the setup that John is giving us here in his prologue. Jesus wins because Jesus is light. He reminds his disciples of this in John 16, where he says, I have, seen, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the truth that we believe about the word. He is the light which has overcome the world because the world has not understood him. Because they have not understood him, there is no way for them to comprehend defeating him. So what? Do I have a biblical understanding of the person of Jesus Christ? And have I found life in him? I began this sermon this morning with an illustration of what does Christmas mean to me? What does, who is Jesus to me? And maybe you're watching this with us online or you're sitting here this morning and, and you, you've fallen into that trap. You want Jesus to be what you want him to be, not what the Bible says he is. Understand something. God gives you the freedom to do that. He gives you the freedom to think as a sentient being how you wish. However, you do not get to create for yourself a Jesus and that Jesus save you. You do not get to create your own version of Jesus and him still be the one who died in your place so that you might have life. The only understanding of Jesus that leads to eternal life is the understanding given to us by the word of God. This is how Jesus says it of himself in John 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus affirms this truth, that there is truth that must be believed in him. But this isn't a command just to gather true information. It's a command to truly know the one who gives life and to believe it, to enter into relationship with it so that you go from darkness to life. When we think of all these things from John that we've read to be true about Jesus today and, and from the epistles that point us to the deity of Christ, we are left with this. Do I really believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Not do I believe part of it, but do I believe all of it? The famous author C.S. Lewis created what is now known as the Lewis Trilemma. That there are one of three options when we approach the truth of the deity of Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is a liar. That he said he was God, which he did, but was not. And if he knowingly was not God, but claimed to be God, then he is a liar. 
The second option would be that he is a lunatic, meaning he claimed to be God, truly believing he was, but that was not true. He believed it, so he's not a liar. He's a lunatic. He was a madman because he believed that he was God when he was not. Or the third, he truly is what the Bible says he is. And if that is the case, he is neither a liar or a lunatic, but he is the Lord of all the universe. The question then is, who is Jesus to you? Because if he is anything other than who the Bible says he is, understand something. You are still in the darkness. But the good news of Jesus is he has brought light into this world and can bring light into your life. If you will come to him in faith and repentance, believing that he is who scripture says he is, the eternal all-powerful son of God who died in your place so that you may have life. Let's pray together. God, would you bring life into people's lights, into people's lives as you shine light into their darkened hearts, we pray. Would we come to your word recognizing that it is true, and that that truth brings life into our life, into our lives, because it opens our eyes to the light which can never be defeated by the darkness. Thank you for this truth. We worship you now, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.